Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. I'm Shane Claiborne. I'm the host of this show, and the name of the show is Across the Pond. We're recording it over in the United States, and many of you are listening in the UK and around the world. I always like to talk about how our faith compels us to act in the world around us, that Christianity is not just a way of believing, but it's a way of living in the world. And Jesus didn't just come to form believers, but to form disciples. Uh, So it should kind of reorient the way that we live. And I get to talk about that with a lot of folks that I I really admire uh, so much. And, And one of those is our guest today, who is David Gushy. He's written all kinds of stuff. He teaches at Mercer Universities down in Georgia. Uh, He's also got a position in Amsterdam, and we'll we'll hear more about that. He's a Christian ethicist, so I'm sure some of you are very uh, excited to hear that Christian ethics is actually a thing. <laughs> Isn't it, David? It's a good thing that there is such a thing as Christian ethics, yes. And and your newest book, uh, which is wonderful, it's just out a couple months ago, uh, Introduction to Christian Ethics, Core Convictions for Christians Today. Uh, and I've been reading, I've told you this, but not everyone listening knows that I've been just devouring your book, The Sacredness of Human Life, Why an Ancient Biblical Vision is Key to the whole, to the World's Future. And uh, we're going to talk about both of those a little bit. But thanks for joining me, man. Thanks for having me on, Shane. It's, it's good to see you again. And uh, I feel like we've known each other forever. But it's good to reconnect. Totally is. And I've been writing this book and found your, your book very helpful as I'm writing it about uh, a better ethic of life. That's uh, some say pro-life from womb to tomb. That's comprehensively um, uh, advocating for life, not just on one particular issue, but really rooted in this idea that every person's made the image of God. So I've got a kink in my neck from uh, all the hours at the computer as I finished the book this month, but your book has been so helpful. And that's what prompted me to, you know, give you a call and say, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. And give us a little foundation for, this is not a new idea. It might be new for some people to make these connections, but the idea of a consistent life ethic um, has some really deep roots. So give us the cliff note, the, the short version. <laughs> sure, I'll try. Um, it is, I think in the book, I, I call it uh, the greatest contribution of Christian ethics uh, to the world. Um, the idea and, and Jewish ethics before that too, though Christianity adds some new things as well. But the idea that um, that every human being and in a different way, the creation itself is sacred. Mm-hmm. That um, that there are no exceptions to the sacredness of life. That the sacredness is not based on our behavior, um, but God's decision. 
Um, so there's nothing one can do to either earn or to lose sacredness in God's sight. Mm -hmm. um, it's not tied to social status or class. It's not tied to race, gender, sexuality. It's, um, it's about God's decision as God looks upon every person that God has made, uh, God declares and has demonstrated that he has declared life sacred. And so the moral implication is staggering. Mm -hmm. Everybody we encounter, we should act as if they are sacred. Mm -hmm. Everybody, every stage. Um, and so every stage of life, every country in the world, every interaction, it's a very demanding moral standard, a very purifying one, and one that nobody ever fully lives up to, but I think it's what we should be aspiring to. Yeah, good aspiration. And uh, as we think about the, you know, what it really looks like, one of the places that I find a lot of inspiration, and in, in, in you do as well from reading your writing, is, is uh, the early church. Uh, it was imperfect, but surely embraced uh, this comprehensive view of life that as sacred. And also, they were a steady voice against violence in so many different manifestations. I mean, they spoke out against the death penalty. I mean, it probably didn't hurt that they were the victims of it, but they also spoke against militarism and war, against um, abortion, uh, against uh, the gladiatorial games, which they saw as sort of a uh, kind of um, this sort of celebration of violence in their own particular culture. So, um, but they weren't perfect, but talk a little bit about, you know, how we see that ethic of life kind of uh, lived out in a way that could inspire us to do similar things today. Yeah, we don't want to um, like romanticize the early church, but I think all the evidence is that inspired by the example of Jesus, um, beginning its journey as a uh, a minority community in the Roman Empire, a Roman Empire which was indifferent, uncomprehending, or hostile towards the church. Mm. Um, <clears throat> uh, the church from its early beginnings um, started off with this tender regard for every life. You, like, you see it, for example, in James uh, saying, why are you paying more attention to the rich than the poor? right? Mm. Treat, uh, treat everybody the same when they come into your assembly, right? That's a, that's a place to start in a very status and money-oriented society then and now, right? Mm -hmm. um, or um, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male, female, Galatians. Um, the the um, racial, ethnic differences overcome. The, the, there could hardly be a more fundamental distinction in status than slave or free, but Paul says, we, you know, we overcome that here. Um, the idea that the church is one new humanity, Ephesians 2, uh, overcoming the divisions of the world. Um, but I, I do think that the, the example of Jesus who died for the salvation of the world but did not kill for it um, was fundamental in setting the tone of a community that was willing to suffer and sacrifice for Jesus but not to kill for Jesus and yeah. that developed a revulsion at the blood, kind of the bloodlust all around it. Um, and, you know, so I think the gladiator games are a really good example. 
taking slaves and having them compete in massive um, amphitheaters or coliseums to the death for the entertainment of the masses while their blood is flying off their bodies. Um, mm. That's, you know, that's grotesque, but people did that for fun. Mm. Um, the death penalty was common. Crucifixion, of course, was the death penalty for Jesus and for so many others. Um, military violence was routine. Uh, crucifixion was routine, but also so was abortion and infanticide. And interestingly, those decisions were, were usually driven by the male head of household mm. um, because of the right of the head of the household in Roman society to decide who would live or who would die among uh, his offspring or children's offspring. It was not uncommon for a child who was unwanted to be left in the woods, either to be, to be eaten up by an animal or to be picked up and sold into slavery. Mm. Um, so, so these practices, um, as well as the relative indifference to the sick and the dying, uh, all of this, uh, the church came in with this constructive practice of love of neighbor, overcoming worldly status divisions and not participating in killing. And I think that's how the church grew, uh, not through fancy evangelistic campaigns, but by being so countercultural and so different mm. from, from that world around it. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that. And, and it, but it, you know, so some start, start to point out that, you know, it, that there were cracks that began to happen. And as it grew and as it grew in um, closer proximity to power um, and um, you, you know, we, we looked at Rodney Stark's work you do in your book uh, to kind of track how that grew a little bit. And um this, this is what we're looking at, y'all. In 100 AD, there were roughly 7,500 Christians. So it's 100, 100 AD, 7,500 Christians, which is smaller than many of our megachurches. Uh, and, and then you said they were just a little dot. But then a generation later, uh, there were 40,000 in 150 AD. And um, that's still less than 1%, not even a tenth of 1%. And then listen to this. Then it starts growing so, so fast that 200 years later, um, you've got 6.3 million uh, Christians. And so it's hard to uh, balance that growth with the integrity of, uh, I mean, it's hard to do spiritual formation <laughs> at that rate, right? Yeah. And, you know, and, but there also is a change uh, from this minority persecuted group to more of a, a majority of the population are growing that direction anyway. And then um, some people look at Constantine as, and, and I think, you know, uh, give him a little bit more credit than he deserves, that it, it was more of a gradual thing. But in some ways, he was sort of an iconic representation of that shift from persecuted to persecutor, from minority faction to the religion of the empire. So Talk a little bit about Constantine and even, you know, bigger than Constantine, how that shift happened. Uh, well, a good way to say it is that uh, you could die for being a Christian around 300 AD. Um, and by 400, um, the church was the official established religion of the Roman Empire. And uh, you could get in trouble for either for not being a Christian or, or especially for being a Christian that 
didn't have the right beliefs according to uh, orthodoxy. Um, so Christianity had a whiplash experience from powerlessness to power. It wasn't right away, um, but over a couple of generations. Um, and, you know, I think I've seen enough now to declare that one of the most dangerous things for Christians is when they end up in a majority. Mm, mm. Um, and when and when we end up in power, like as I look around, it's not just being in power that gets us in trouble. It's then if we perceive that our power is slipping. Yeah. Then we get mad. And and then we seek to leverage whatever power we have left. And yeah. I, you know, here here's a little interesting little tidbit. I, you know, my my dissertation was on the Holocaust, so I read books about the Holocaust. I read a, a very high end empirical study of rescue of Jews in the Netherlands and in Belgium. Hmm. And this guy discovered that the the place you wanted to go if you were a Jewish person looking to be rescued in the Netherlands or uh, Belgium was just don't go to whatever the majority religious community was in town. Mm. Like, in other words, like a lot of parts of the Netherlands are um, heavily Dutch reformed, um, but some parts are Catholic. Whatever the minority religious Christian expression was in a community, that's where you wanted to go. So mm. in a Catholic neighborhood, you wanna go find the, the Protestants. In a Protestant neighborhood, you wanna go find the Catholics. I think that's interesting. Um, there's something about being in the majority that that leaves Christians more uh, more likely to drift away from Jesus into power politics or majoritarianism or the preservation of their power uh, or just flat out corruption. Yeah. And and so and in the U.S., I mean, look at how much of our politics is affected by aggrieved Christians believing that their power is threatened. Mm. Mm. Um. So it's not a coincidence that the church tends to be at its healthiest when it is neither in power nor attempting to protect the power that it wishes it had or once had or whatever. The, yeah. early, the early story is a story of a marginalized group just holding on to its integrity. Um, and, and I often, you know, my, my, my reading is that we generally are healthiest in those situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and before we move on from from the Constantine era, uh, you know, it, it, it does seem like there's a, a big thing that happened there where, you know, Constantine's now recognized by a saint by some parts of the church and, uh, <laughs> and by other parts, not so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I, as I was reading and digging a little deeper on this um, so a lot of folks know, but some may not, that Constantine was instrumental in uh, sort of helping to host the Nicene Summit, uh, the Council of Nicaea, where we get the Nicene Creed and many other really important conversations that the church came out of that. Um, but, I, you know, I, I can't remember if you mentioned this or not, but it was like a year later that Constantine actually kills his own son, and only a short time later that he basically killed his wife as well by boiling her in the pool or something like that. I mean, so it's, it's really hard for me to look back and think, how is it that he's, you know, even if he's 
if his motives are more political, he's rubbing shoulders with all these bishops and Christians who many of them have been willing to die for their faith. And yet, like, he's still killing his own family and a lot of other people. <laughs> it, it's, you know, it's the, the Roman Empire power games kept on going. Um, he, he just, he found it for whatever reason, either convenient or he actually believed it. But it's interesting that that his experience at the Milvian Bridge is essentially you will conquer under the sign of the cross. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't humble yourself and follow the nonviolent Jesus. It's you will conquer under the sign of the cross. And that is a foreshadowing of a lot of what happened later in Christian history. Uh, yeah. you, will, you will conquer under the sign of the cross. Um, you know, the people who marched on the Capitol on January 6, 2021, some of them were attempting to conquer under the sign of the cross. Whoa. The you went there. I went there. Uh, <laughs> the, the Crusaders, you know, going from Europe to the Holy Land, were uh, they were going to conquer under the sign of the cross. Um, so that, that sacred cross um, and that sacred name of Jesus can be employed for a lot of different purposes. And when the cross becomes the sign of our tribe conquering that other tribe, then you're 180 degrees away from that early church's uh, vision. Hmm. Yeah. So for folks that might just be tuning in, I'm talking with David Gushy, who's a wonderful, one of the great thinkers in the church, especially when it comes to ethics and how our, Christ, how our faith sort of plays itself out and some of the big moral issues of our day. And I, I hope you'll check out his book, He's got written a ton of stuff, but his newest book is Introduction to Christian Ethics and uh, be a great one to pick up and, and introduction to David's work. So uh, we're talking about kind of the, the, a comprehensive ethic of life to, to celebrate, champion, defend life without exceptions. And uh, we've talked a little bit about Constantine and the early church, um, but we, we've got about 10 minutes left. And I wonder if you'll paint a little picture of... Um, I th you, you do a really great job at showing the church's failure through history, but also the church's faithfulness. And a lot of times at the exact same moment, you know, it's like Jesus saying the wheat and the weeds are all growing together. And we see that, you know, in some of the, the, the most desperate moments of history, uh, like Hitler and colonization and um, the, the slave trade and all so many things. So maybe just what are some takeaways? What are some places that we that can inspire us, but also give us a little sounding warning uh, uh, to learn from the history, lest we repeat it? Um, in, the, in the next 10 minutes, since you've written sure, like yeah. entire uh, books on the Holocaust, I'm learning that I think we need to, to do a whole series on this, David. So maybe I'd be happy, happy to do it, Shane. Um, <laughs> Well, it kind of connects um, when Christianity becomes uh, allied with or partner with crown, throne, military power, you know, the religion of the of the of the state. Um, if that state is going to be an imperial state, then Christianity goes with empire, right? Um, mm. Wherever empire goes, Christianity goes, the cross goes. If that state's going to be a colonizing power, then the cross goes with the colonizers, right? Mm. Um, and so a lot of the modern history uh, of Christianity is 
you know, the cross goes with the Portuguese and the Spanish in Latin America, then and the cross goes with the Dutch and the British in North America and the French, right? And, you know, uh, the cross goes with the Catholics and the Protestants and the Orthodox, wherever they seek to extend their power, which always involves an awful lot of killing and often has involved a lot of enslavement and, and exploitation and annihilation at times. Um, but what I found in working on that Sacredness of Life book is that everywhere that the name of Jesus was abused in the name of power, there were always people who said no, who protested, mm. who said, this is not what we should be doing. This is not what the church should be blessing. Uh, we sh there's a better way or, or, or just a flat out no. And so, you know, there was the Holocaust and a lot of Christians who went along, but there were also resistors and rescuers, you know, mm -hmm. and there was colonization in Latin America. And then there were people like Bartolome de las Casas who said, no, this is an outrage. And there, and, you know, there were, um, you know, people who were for slavery in, in the U.S. And then there were people who were bitterly opposed, African-Americans as well as white Americans. Mm -hmm. um, so in every generation, uh, we have to decide what does the Lord require of us and when must we say a no to prevailing powers and practices. Yeah. And um, sometimes that saying no feels very, very lonely at the time. But mm -hmm. in, in the perspective of history, it was the right word to be said. You know, in apartheid South Africa, there were plenty of Christians who thought apartheid was God's will. Yeah. And, and embraced it. They had a whole theology of apartheid. And others who said, no way. What are you thinking about? This is, you know, this is evil. So I've learned that there is no such thing as one Christian approach or one Christian voice, one Christian moral vision. There's always an argument going on. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah. Are we listening to the argument and are we positioning ourselves not just with the right with the right view, but also the right practice to 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 follow Jesus faithfully instead of to desecrate his name? Yeah, wow. So the, as we, we've got just a few minutes left and I want to the one of the questions I want to ask you is I mean, obviously a lot of people are rejecting Christianity because of the distorted, violent unchristlike <laughs> versions of Christianity that are out there. Um, and there's plenty to deconstruct and reject, but some folks that's the end of the road for them, you know, is, um, and, and I, I have a lot of concerns about that. I, you know, I've sometimes said it's, it's like going to a, a, con a bad concert and uh, giving up all music or something. But mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, a, a bad concert doesn't leave you with scars and trauma, which is what, you know, many people have experienced. Um, but there, there, there's a lot. The landscape of Christianity is really big. And I wonder if you might share a couple of places that you continue to see hope. Um, you know, Shane, I've been thinking a lot about this. Uh, I have a book called After Evangelicalism that came out in 20. And mm. it's, it's really about and for uh, those who have deconstructed um, evangelical faith and and then all together, too many cases have been left with nothing, right? You know, um, I understand it, and you, you alluded to it. There's a lot of trauma and a lot of hurt and a lot of young people who are like, forget this, right? Um, 
but I've been trying to argue for the longest time, you know, the, 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 the most atrocious sections of, or sectors of Christianity or the worst experiences of Christianity never exhaust the experience of Christianity. I used the image recently that the Christian tradition, it's like a massive mansion with many rooms. And some, mm. some people are rejecting the whole mansion because the room they happen to be raised in was pretty awful. Mm-hmm. And I'll yeah, just yeah. say, you ought to find another, another room there because there's some other ones, you know? So yeah. there's, um, I, I, I think that, um, that post-evangelicalism is showing some signs of life. Uh, churches that have worked their way into and through kind of mainstream white evangelicalism are coming out on the other side. There's also some interesting renewal, I think, in some of the mainline churches and mainline Protestantism. Um, uh, I, I like a lot of what I see in kind of center-left Catholicism. Um, there's a lot of interesting things happening in the podcast and online space. Um, so, so there's a lot of spaces out there, a lot of voices. Um, Jesus is not the problem. Toxic Christianity is the problem. Find a less or non-toxic Christianity. Mm, that's, a, that's a good place to leave us. We might have to do this again, but thank you all for listening in. And, uh, you know, I do a lot of gardening, David, and uh, we always know that good stuff comes out of the compost. And um, so good stuff can come out of the compost of Christendom as well. So uh, what a great conversation, y'all. Thanks for listening in. I'm Shane Claiborne, and this has been a wonderful conversation with David Gushy. Make sure you check out all of his books uh, and follow him on, on the socials. And Join us next week at this time. We'll keep talking about what it looks like to live a Christianity that is known for love and that is known to embrace all life uh, is made in the image of God without exception. So thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.